Welcome to Lake Mount Worship Center, connecting you to the life-changing presence of Jesus Christ. We hope that you are blessed and inspired by today's message. All right, we're going to continue to dig into our series in worship because I really feel like the Lord is preparing us for something as we get our hearts how many have been, been getting something out of this series? We've just been digging in to what worship is. Uh, and, and we learn a lot of worship, a, lo- a lot about worship from the life of King David. At the time of King David's kingship, when he uh, came into rule, Israel had been engaged in a war with the Philistines for generations. And just prior to David's kingship, the, the, the king before him, Saul, had actually kind of suspended that conflict with the Philistines and engaged the people of God to aim their weapons at David. It was an anti-anointing uh, assault. There was something that was aimed at David to try to cancel out the purpose of God on his life. And, and that's not what I'm preaching on today, but can I just say this to you? The purpose of God on your life cannot be canceled out by the plans of darkness. When God's got his hand on your life, you're going to be okay. When God has called you and anointed you for a purpose, just stay true to your purpose. Don't get distracted and pulled in. One of the biggest distractions is for us to get pulled into the argument and the conflict that is immediate, but it is not important. And when we get dragged into those immediate conflicts, what happens is we begin to divert our attention from what it is that God's called us to be. What God had called David to be was a man after his heart. And there was something that was brewing in David's heart. We're going to look at today and next week. Something that was brewing in his heart about the presence of the Lord. And if David would have got drawn into the soulish conflict with Saul and fought back, that would have canceled what God had put on his life But when he stayed true to God, listen, when you stay true to God, there's no weapon that is fashioned against you that can prosper. And so you just need to have confidence that the purpose of God, the God who called you, he's faithful. He's going to watch over his calling in your life. He will do that. You watch over your character, God will watch over your call. Amen. So, so David now comes into leadership. This is just setting the context for where I want us to go in the word this morning. That when David comes into leadership, he's now going to be leading the people that for a number of years, seven to ten years, had been aimed against him. And so now he is their leader. And so there's some shifting of loyalty that needs to happen. There's some shifting in direction. But this conflict with the Philistines has been lingering in the background. Just prior, and I'm I'm trying to set some context here for you. I'm not trying to talk way above your heads, but I just want you to kind of get the context. Before, uh, Before the judgeship of Samuel, the Ark of God's presence in the Old Testament, known as the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Presence, it's all the same thing. This ark that God had instructed Moses to build and and construct, uh, you know, there's movies that have been made about it, Raiders of the Lost Ark, all of this. That, that, That ark in the Old Testament was where God's presence was housed. And so this ark of God's presence was meant to be the centerpiece of God's people. That's the same as it is today. God's presence is meant to be the central point of who we are and what we gather around. His presence. And so the Ark of the Presence, before Samuel's judgeship, the Ark was, was um, taken. It was lost to the Philistines. And when the Philistines attempted to take this 
ark of the presence of God and simply reduce it to a trophy of war, they thought what they would do is they would take the ark of the presence of the living only God and put it in the temple of their God, Dagon. And when they put the ark of the presence in that temple, their God, Dagon, the next morning when they came in to check on it, their God, Dagon, was fallen face first in front of the ark. I love it. I just, I just think that's cool. Nobody pushed it over. It was the presence of God. So if you want a theology of getting slain in the spirit, there you go. Okay. So <laughs> where's that in the Bible? There you go. Okay. So, and then they, they just, you know, they were like, oh, it must've been an earthquake or something. They put it back up. And the next day it fell again and it's, it's arms were broken off. And this thing was, was laying prostrate in the presence of the Lord. Not only was that happening in the spiritual realm, in that dark, demonic place of worship, the presence of God bringing light and bringing submission, but also the people of the Philistines were actually breaking out in tumors. Okay? Now, I'm giving you a lot of history before we get to the text. You're like, wow, this sermon's... Real. Okay, so there, there's tumors that are being afflicted all over the people. Okay, and people did the math. They were like, wait a second. I think there's something about the God of Israel and that ark that they call the Ark of the Covenant or the testimony of the presence. That is, there's a line between that and our God falling face first and its arms breaking off and, um, and these tumors. And so what they did was they took the Ark of the presence of God. They put it on an ox cart and slapped a couple of oxen in the buttons that head that way. And so the oxen carried and dragged the ark of the testimony on, an, on, a, on a cart back to the people of Israel. And so for about 40 years, it remained at the home of Abinadab on the border of Judah, just near the territory of the Philistines. Okay, so again, I'm just setting a context now. This is the ark of the presence of God. This is, this is during the judgeship of Samuel. The entire reign of Saul, the ark of God's presence, remained at Abinadab's house, and he never once made any motion toward it or placing it where it rightfully belonged. It wasn't in King Saul's heart to have a priority for the presence of the Lord in worship. And that less priority for the presence of God, higher priority for himself was his undoing that he became proud in himself. And eventually, God took the kingship from him. He was demonized and afflicted, and God anointed David, and that's this season of David being persecuted by Saul, the one who was once anointed, now recognizing the anointing on another one and being competitive with him and trying to snuff him out. All the while, the ark of God's presence remains and a guy named Abinadab remains in his barn, okay? So during the entire reign of Saul, there was no effort to recover the ark. I just want you to understand there's no effort to make the presence of God central to the people. When David became king, it was his top priority. This was what was preoccupying his heart and his mind 
all from the time that he was anointed as a young boy while he served Saul and then while he ran from him and while he awaited the uh, people's anointing. He'd already been anointed by God, but he needed the people to anoint him to lead them. All while he waited for that, what was in his heart, top priority, we can see it by his actions, not just his words. He went after the ark of the presence of God. That was the first thing that he wanted back to make the presence of God central to the people of God. So when God says that he wants a man after his own heart, we can learn from such a man a priority for the presence of the Lord. And so David has been waiting the ark has been in captivity for 40, has been in uh, neglect for 40 years. The people have been, uh, you know, led by, by a, a corrupted leader. And now David, top priority, wants the ark of the presence front and center. That's a good heart. How many would agree with me? That's a good heart. That's a heart after God. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, you can go there. And we're going to look at some verses just after where I'm just continuing to set the context here this morning. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, the ark of the presence is top on David's list. And so he goes to Abinadab's house and he gets the ark of the presence and he places it on a new ox cart. And then he gets all of the people to come and celebrate and the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, that the people with David were celebrating. They're all worshiping. A spirit of worship has come upon the people. And they're singing and they're making music and they're dancing and they're celebrating before the Lord. And then the oxen stumbled. They're going down this dirt road. And there's some kind of, you know, maybe a rock or a, a divot and the oxen stumbles. And as it stumbles, the ark of God's presence begins to slide off of the ox cart. And a man named Uzzah, who was Abinadab's son, who was serving as a priest, who had grown up, literally grown up with the ark of the presence around him, grew up with this ark in his barn, played around it, and then became a priest around it. When the ark of the presence began to slide off of the cart, Uzzah reached forward to stabilize it, which seems like the right thing to do. And yet the Bible says that it was irreverent for him to touch the presence of the Lord with a common hand. And so it's a perplexing scripture this morning. I'm just touching on it. But that when Uzzah reached out to, to stabilize the ark that was sliding off of a cart, he was struck dead. God's anger burned against him. In 2023, we have problems with the holiness of God, if we're honest. We have problems with the anger of God. We're good with love. We're good with everybody's in. We're good with all the nice stuff. But the reality is God is as holy as he is loving. And there's, there's much to learn from the holiness of God. And what happened in this worship service, if you could picture it, is the entire nation has come at David's directive. He's been waiting his whole life for this moment. 
and he kept himself from engaging in the inferior battle with Saul and he just submitted to the purpose of God, kept his heart clean. And now as he's stepping into his leadership, his number one priority is let's get the people to worship around the presence of God. That's good if you're ticking the boxes of what's good or bad. David's hitting all the right boxes. Good, good, good. I want to worship. I want the presence of God front and center. The ark doesn't belong in a barn. I want to build a a temple. I want to build a time of worship that the people will give themselves to. Good, good, good. Uzzah reaches out while the service is just flowing and, and there's just this exuberance of worship. And when he touches the ark, he drops dead. That changes the whole tenor. That changes the whole mood and feel. That no doubt perplexed David. In fact, scripture tells us David was angry. It's understandable. Sometimes we can't understand the ways of God and our emotions run out in front and we don't understand him and so we react. And David got angry. And and in this moment, he really didn't know what to do. So he just said, take take the ark over to that guy's house. Obed-Edom just sent it over there. And David went home. But something, obviously, it's not written in the text, but something had to have been stirring in David's heart. This longing for the presence of the Lord didn't dissipate but there was confusion around the holiness of God. And I think that that still lingers. We sometimes are perplexed by the ways of a holy God. And our job is not to put him on trial. Our job is to submit and learn and yield to his ways. And so David now sends the ark over to Obed-Edom's house And I can only imagine what these three months felt like for him. The heart of a worshiper, the heart after God. Maybe checking himself, praying, Lord, what did we do? Maybe going back through scripture and saying, what did we do wrong? And the Bible doesn't say the lesson came to them or how the lesson came to them, but it tells us that on the second attempt that we're about to get to where we're going to focus our attention today, they handled the ark differently. Do you know what it was? The ark of God doesn't belong on an ox cart of convenience. The ark of God's presence belongs on the shoulder of priests. And when for convenience and expediency and to look like the way the Philistines sent the ark to us is the way that we'll take the ark to God, when we start steering the presence of God according to our own desire and what we want to do in 28 minutes, Perhaps we miss something of the spirit of holiness and the grandness of God. So David went to soul search and he began to learn we need priests. We need consecrated lives. What we were talking about last week, a life of consecration. We need people who are set apart, who aren't just living like everyone else, but who understand to carry the presence of the Lord demands that I leave some things behind because I'm going to ascend this mountain. Because I'm going to go closer to God means I can't be as close to the things of the world as I once was.
And so we need some priests who have sanctified shoulders, meaning they've, they're living a clean and holy life, and they'll carry the ark of his presence. And while he's doing his research and while he's praying, a testimony comes. And the knock at the door comes. That's our context. Go with me now. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. And something in that moment jolted to life. David, no doubt, could not understand and, and the nation would have grieved at the loss of a young man who's just reaching out to stabilize the ark of God and And he drops dead at the anger of the Lord and it's perplexing and we don't understand and David goes to research and goes to prayer. But then the knock comes at the door. David, though you may not understand what happened to Uzzah, you are right about God. He's blessed everything at Obed-Edom's house. And I don't know what that looks like, but I got an idea. The fruit was bigger. Right? Right? Everyone's feeling amazing. It's like, you know, when Spider-Man, you know, when he gets bit by the spider and he's standing in front of the mirror, he's like, wow. (laughs) Probably not, but I'm just saying. (laughs) There's blessing that comes and the blessing was noticeable enough that it begot a testimony and that someone needed to bring a message. God's not mad. He's holy, but he's not angry. And there's something we must have done. But when God is honored and when he's handled rightly, there's blessing on the house. (laughs) And so David was told, Obed-Edom's house and everything he has has been blessed because, everybody say because. Because of the ark of God. Because of the presence of the Lord. And so David went down and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Think about it. David reclaimed his will to worship. He got over what he couldn't understand. And if we're honest, there's a whole lot about that we don't really understand. But yet, when he saw what was good and what God was blessing, he chose to lean toward the blessing instead of leaning toward the confusion. Everyone who's tempted to deconstruct, take a lesson from David. Lean away from what you can't understand. I'm not saying turn your brain off. Just lean toward what you can understand in the goodness of God. It might stand to reason that God is so big, even if he tried to explain himself, you wouldn't get it. At least I wouldn't. He's big. But David chose to lean away from that which offended his heart and that which broke his will to worship. And he leaned towards that which renewed his will to worship. And in one verse, he was told there's blessing. And he's like, okay, well, let's get the ark. Let's bring it back. I'm over it. Let's, let's, let's build this dream that's been building in my heart all this time. Let's go for it. And so verse 13 of 2 Samuel 6, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Many theologians believe 
that that wasn't a one-time thing. It's, many theologians believe that they didn't just take six steps and then sacrifice. Many theologians believe every six steps they sacrifice to the Lord. Like, in other words, what we mishandled before was treating the holy as common and just trying to put the presence of God in our back pocket, put it in a car, walk on our way and just be about our, our merry way and not really honor the Lord. And something shifted in research. It needs to be on the shoulder of priests and we need to have an attitude of sacrifice and we need to be mindful of what it costs to worship the Lord. And they sacrificed again and again and again as they made their way to the city of David. Verse 14, David wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. And while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. The Bible's painting a picture. Everyone's just celebrating the goodness of God. This is a worship service where it's going off. David, David has stripped down to a linen ephod. Some people say David danced naked before the ark of the Lord. That's irreverent. That's not biblical. David was prophetic, not perverted. He was dancing in a linen ephod, meaning a servant's garment, meaning I'm setting aside the things that would draw attention to me as the king. I'm not trying to institute everyone do it like I do it. I'm trying to get lost in the crowd so that I can keep my eyes on Jesus. And I don't want you looking at me either. You would hardly believe that the king was dancing in a linen ephod. That was the point. I'm trying to be lost in the crowd so that I can actually get lost in his presence. And the whole nation is being drawn up. This is a prophetic moment. There's an atmosphere that's shifting over the nation. Years of, of wandering under an unrighteous king engaging in, in strange battles and forgetting about the presence of the Lord. David's heart was undeterred after his disappointment with Uzzah. And now he's bringing the ark in and he's dancing before the Lord with all his might. In other words, he's not just kind of, you know, bobbing his head. He, he's not, you know, trying to look cool. He's going for it with all his might. David's like praiser-sizing. <laughs> he's, he's having an aerobic workout as he worships the Lord. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, or from here on, would you give me permission to just call her Michelle? The name meaning is the same. Just, it's Michal. But I feel like I sound like a snob when I say Michal. <laughs> wow, I didn't know the pastor was Hebraic. <laughs> Michal is the, is the female derivative of the name Michael, which means who is like the Lord. Michelle is just a French version of the same name. Give me permission. Just so we can stay in the story and not be like, oh, Michal, this guy's a literary guru. Michelle. Michelle, the French wife of the king. <laughs> As he built an alliance to take over the Europe's. Okay. 
As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michelle, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Wow, that's where I want to spend a little time today. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings, the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michelle, the French daughter of Saul, (laughs) came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michelle, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me. Ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michelle, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Michelle... Watch David worship. Now, let's not separate ourselves from the story. Try to put yourself in here. Because this is not, this is not, um, this is not like, you know, when, when King Charles is going down the street in his carriage and there's, everyone's just, you know, waving and it's, it's pomp and circumstance. What you need to conjure in your mind is less of a royal procession and more of a radical worship service where the presence of God is felt and known. What you need to conjure in your mind is, is like, like the glory of the Lord coming upon the people and a whole city. What you need to picture in your mind is that this is a setting that is the presence of God changing the way that everything looks and feels. And while the whole city, and the Bible says everybody's in on it, everybody's celebrating and dancing. It's not just this is exciting, you know, we just won a battle or something. This isn't victory of some sort. This is distinctly celebration and worship of the presence of the Lord coming to the center of the city and honoring God just for who he is. He didn't even do anything specifically. This isn't celebration. We got delivered. We won a battle. God didn't answer some big prayer. It was just, wait a second, the lights are on. God's the main thing. And revelation is hitting the city. And in that atmosphere where everyone is in on it, somebody isn't. Michelle. And she's instead of participating and instead of joining into the worship, she's analyzing She's, 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 you know, looking at it going, I don't know if I like this. Seems like they could have coordinated some outfits over there. And I don't know if I like that trumpet player. He's kind of off a bit. 
I don't know if I like David dancing around in his linen ephod. And there's several things that are on my list, and David's going to hear about it when he gets home. And instead of being drawn in to the presence of God that is literally just outside the window, instead of looking and going, I wonder if maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Instead, she's looking, trying to figure out what others are doing wrong in worship. Now, this might be helpful and useful to us as we dig into what worship is. Because sometimes the lessons that are helpful to us aren't just the examples of what is good to do, but sometimes we can learn from someone who did it wrong. And take a look and say, well, I don't, I don't want to cultivate that attitude. I don't want to respond that way. She despised. Literally, it means that she lost respect for. She looks at her husband, who's just been established as king, First thing he did was capture the city of Jerusalem. Next thing he did was get the ark of God. In other words, he needed a place to put the ark. So he thought, best city I can think of, Jerusalem. And he went and captured Jerusalem, and then he went and got the ark. And this is the main thing. Let's worship. And so she's watching how her husband is going to lead. And instead of following, she's criticizing. She's observing. Why? did Michelle despise David? The reality is is that we can't be sure. We we can't say 100%. But what we can do is, is make observations from times when there has been criticism of worship and see if it fits. First thing is that I've observed and I think could be helpful to us is that extravagant worship highlights the blandness of others. Extravagant worship points out a lack of extravagance. The other day, I was trying to see if if the antenna on the top of our house was picking up TV stations, and so I turned on the TV and just trying to get a signal. And the show that I picked up was The Price is Right. Now, I remember The Price is Right back from when I was a kid with Bob Barker, right? skinny little microphone and come on up and someone would come up and they'd be like, oh, I'm so excited to be here and give Bob a kiss on the cheek. I don't know what happened from the time that I saw it as a child to now, but people are literally having a conniption. Like their name gets called and like this lady does a cartwheel. She runs to the front and like runs around in circles and he, Drew Carey's just standing there like, ha, 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 ha. I'm like, do they give these people Red Bulls when they walk in the door? Everyone's just losing their mind. Yeah, you win the TV. It's like, okay. That kind of exuberance really stands out to the guy who's trying to see if the antenna works and be like, calm down a bit. Like, it's just the price is right. But exuberance in the presence of God. When someone is worshiping the Lord with all of their might, it certainly by cross-reference, would highlight someone who's really not doing anything at all. And that juxtaposition often causes defensiveness. People can get offended. 
and look at someone else who's worshiping really hard and be like, oh boy, this guy just thinks he's such a worshiper. (laughs) This person over here just dancing and whatever, he's not even good. (laughs) Do you know you cannot despise and worship at the same time? Sometimes criticism springs from diverting attention away from your own personal apathy. I don't like the way that that person sings. If we're honest, we've all been guilty of looking at what someone else's offers and thinking, that's weird. Maybe, maybe you don't know why they're worshiping the way they do. We can throw away the word maybe. You don't know why someone worships the way they do. You don't know how God's broken through for them. You don't know the prayers that God's answered. You don't know. Maybe someone is worshiping their face off and they're in the battle of their lives, but they're determined to give God a sacrifice of praise. And they're going for it. And if I'm looking with an eye of criticism, thinking, oh, they think they're so much more worshipful than me, here's what I would suggest to you. Everyone that was worshiping that day, everyone that was participating, David who was worshiping that day, all the musicians, everyone dancing, I dare say there was not a single person who thought to themselves, oh, look at Michelle. What do I mean? I mean, sometimes we're thinking about ourselves more than anyone else is. It's not like everyone's standing going, oh, Michelle's standing up there in the window. Maybe I should go stand in a window. We'll have window dressing worship. And while everyone else is dancing and going crazy, we'll just be like, see, we often think that everyone's listening to us and watching us. And, and, and so we need to make an assessment. When we see someone doing something more than us, I think what's important to learn from the life of Michelle is that the extravagance that highlights a lack of extravagance isn't something for me to criticize. It's something for me to just recognize somebody is seeing something about God or they're grateful in a way that I'm not. And instead of criticizing, perhaps... I could get drafted in. Perhaps I could allow myself to be drawn into the same spirit of worship. Second thing is, is when we presume to know someone else's motives, our focus is misdirected. God makes it clear in his word at the anointing of David, actually, that we human beings, we look on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And so when we think that we can see inside of someone's heart, there's a word for that. Uh, biblically and theologically, when you think that you can see into someone else's heart, there's a word that describes that mindset. That word is wrong. (laughs) You're wrong. You can't see into someone's heart. You can't see their motives. You can think you can. You could maybe even be like, I think prophetically God showed me. There's a word for that. Wrong. You you just, God's... (laughs) You can't see into why someone else is worshiping the way they're doing, okay? And so when you presume to know someone else's motives, your focus is misdirected. When we're more focused on the way that someone else is worshiping 
we're no longer worshiping. That's a fact. I stopped worshiping to watch you. I stopped worshiping to listen to you, to criticize you. To be like, wow, tone it down, Debbie. You can't even sing. Sorry to any Debbie in the room. That was just a name that popped into my head. God bless all the Debbies in their worship. <laughs> when I think, oh man, why, why do they behave like that? Why do they gesture like that? What? Here's a thought. Why does it even matter to you and your worship? I can't worship and criticize at the same time. And judging the way another person worships is arrogant, specifically because they're not worshiping you, so it has really nothing to do with your assessment. They're worshiping God. And things are rarely just as they appear. The third observation is that when the spiritual temperature is increasing, we need to make adjustments instead of longing for the good old days. I think that might have been a bit of what was happening in Michelle. Like she could sense that things were going to be different and apparently she wasn't looking forward to the changes. She could sense, like David is establishing, you know, when leadership is fresh and he's making these changes, what he's really doing isn't so much casting vision as it is as setting a culture. He's setting a culture for the people. We're going we're gonna to make the presence of God a priority around here. And people could be like, I've been around here a long time. We've never done that before. Yeah, there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new king. Check the business card. It's not Saul. It's now David. Well, Saul never did it this way. You know who might say Saul never did it this way more than anyone else? His daughter, Michelle. I'm an expert on royal behavior because I've grown up a princess. And so I know the way that things are supposed to be. And this shepherd boy who's been living in a cave for the last seven years might need to come to my refining school. And I'm going to just help him grow as a leader. Isn't he so blessed that he married me? I'll teach him a thing or two about how it's done. And that's not how it's done. How do you know that's not how it's done? Because it's never been done that way before. Oh. I wonder if God has anything to say about doing new things. David, her husband, and also the king, spiritual covering, he's cranking up the fervor for the Lord, and clearly she wasn't excited to be in a home that was all dancey, worshipy, and sweaty, and linen ephod She wasn't excited about being married to someone who was unconcerned with his image. Ooh, well, that hits a little closer to home. Don't you realize that when you do that, you're an extension of me? No. Nope, never crossed my mind. I am going to worship God and 
you're going to have to adjust. In Christian marriage, like Lisa is not first in my life. Jesus is first. We talked about that last week. And so the adjustment cascades from putting God in the highest place. And so when I feel like your behaviors are an extension of me, that's my hard work to do, not me try to adjust you and tinker with you. And can you stop? Could you stop dancing like that? Could you stop singing out of tune? Could you stop sweating at church? Could you stop crying when you pray or at least carry a Kleenex when you do? The sap starts running and it's an extension to me. It's very embarrassing. Trying to go hard after God and yet remain relatively the same is an oxymoron. You can't go hard after God and be the same as you are right now. We talked about that all last week. To go to the next summit on the mountain, I'm going to look different. There'll be less that comes with me. And so as I proceed toward the Lord, expect changes. As you proceed toward the Lord, expect changes. And so when David, the man after God's own heart, becomes king, expect changes. The ark of the Lord stayed in Abinadab's barn for 40 years. David made it numero uno priority. Let's get the ark of God in the center of God's people. And she wasn't loving that. Connected to that thought is fourthly and finally, predictability is overrated. Michelle thought she was an expert in proper royal behavior. And as people, we process new experiences against the backdrop of prior experiences. That's just how we do it. Worship team can come. The problem is, is that we can often assume that the way that it has been is the way that it's supposed to be. Can I just say that again? Sometimes when we look through the lens of our personal experience, our personal experience tells us this is what is normal. But all of us have experienced an adjustment to what we think is normal. Maybe when you go to a friend's house for a sleepover as a child and you realize, oh, that's not normal. That's just what we do at our house. What they do at their house is different. And we are given culture and values and practices that when we routinely use them, it becomes what we think is normal. And so when we assess something new against the grid of prior experience, the new is seen as foreign and something to be rejected. Why? Because we've never done this before. And let's stay in the predictable form of this is like, that's not how we worship. Worship is for the priests over there somewhere. You can smell it when they're burning animals. Worship is like, it's like someone's job. You're a king. Kings don't do this. And they certainly don't do it in linen ephods. And you're dancing around like a servant. And everyone's just having this big exuberant party because a ark came back. Get a grip. That's not what we do. I know because I understand how to predict the future based on my present. 
and my past. And that's overrated. That can make us resistant to change. I've observed pastorally that often people can love the idea of being different, but really they dislike the process of change. I like the idea of change, but actually changing? (laughs) I'd like to be different. Could God just touch me and I'm different? What What if there's this slow death to the way I'm comfortable? into what is my normal. And I start realizing, wait a second, if the presence of God is going to be central in the nation, it's going to be different than being led by a demonized leader who's trying to kill the anointed one. I should expect some change. What if the level of worship that God is inviting you to is like nothing you've ever seen before. What if you and I have no grid for the revival that God is bringing near? Like what if our prior experiences are somewhat helpful, but not exactly a roadmap for where God wants to take us? What if it looks different? but it's God. God God was using David to awaken the people to a priority for his presence. Bringing back the ark of the presence to Jerusalem, it's a great concept, but in practical terms, the presence of God demands that we change. God's presence in your life demands that you change. God's presence in the room demands that we change, that we adjust that we recognize his supremacy and his lordship and we move toward that in the ways that he's called us building sermon after sermon week after week the things that God calls us to in worship yes from the heart yes from a life laid down but then the expressiveness that we see in David this is part one of a two-part message on what it means to be undignified in the presence of the Lord what we have to set aside is Michelle's mindset of criticizing and analyzing, overthinking. Maintaining an unbroken gaze on Jesus is a challenge when everything just keeps on happening around you that was your normal, but now God's calling me into a new normal. He's taking me higher up the hill. When someone questions your sincerity, it can cut deep. Let's not separate ourselves from it. This is his wife, and she's criticizing his motives. I know what you're really about, trying to get the girls to look at you. That's what she's saying. Look at you out there dancing around, flexing your muscles while you dance. Seeing if the girls will go, ooh, this king's young and handsome. I know what you're about. That's a deep criticism thinking that he's got ulterior motives for dancing before the Lord with all his might and giving away gifts. So it's all ulterior motives. The Bible says in Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2, it says that God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. 
where God pours out his spirit, your flesh, the part that sweats, the part that dances. And not even dancing in the spirit because there's no such thing. What do I mean? I mean, you have to choose to dance. Holy Spirit doesn't make you dance. You dance. David danced. The Bible doesn't say the Holy Spirit danced through David. It says David danced before the Lord with all his might. David responded to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We have the same decision. God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. These are days that God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Your flesh response is not automatic. Every one of us are called to dance and sing and clap and shout and praise the Lord. All of us are called to respond. Wherever we decide to level off, that's an indication of our passion. So we need to fully engage every part of us and say, I'm not going to let someone else's criticism or my inner critic change the way that I worship the Lord. How many are with me on that? Can we stand together? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information on who we are, visit our website at lakebound.ca or download our app for your mobile device.